This is Our American Stories, and we love talking about work, entrepreneurship, and taking care of each other. And this next story combines all of those things in a very special coffee shop, Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it's run by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice to work. And today we have on the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee with us, Amy Wright. Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Lee. I'm glad to be joining you today. Well, Amy, before we get into the business, the idea, this beautiful story, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, and and how you got to this place where you were thinking about doing something like this. Sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, but I spent very little time there. My family quickly moved on to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I spent... Uh, through fifth grade, we lived there, and then uh, my family decided to move south, and um, we settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my years uh, through high school, and uh, I'm the oldest of five children, so we had a really, you know, fun upbringing, um, very tight-knit family, and I just I loved my childhood, and even back then, uh, my parents say I had quite the entrepreneurial spirit because <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to host weekend talent shows where the whole neighborhood would get involved or, um, you know, do little uh, lemonade stands uh, every weekend. So I always loved small business and um, just trying to try new things and involve my siblings. So that was that was my upbringing. Uh, when I decided to go to college, I wanted to major in musical theater. I was very uh, into the arts and ended up going to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I met Mr. Wright, I like to say, my husband, Ben Wright, and I met there during my senior year in college, and we just fell in love instantly. We were um, We met in September. We were engaged that New Year's Eve, and we married in May. And uh, after that, we moved directly to New York City because I wanted to pursue acting at that time. And and Ben had had a professional acting career prior to meeting me. And so um, moving back to New York City was a no-brainer for him as well. So we moved um, back to New York. Well, I moved for the first time. He moved back to New York. And um, we pursued acting careers and did that for a while and realized that we were spending more time apart than together because of different jobs that came up. And so uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, we decided we were going to settle down in the South, closer to my family, and um, have kind of a more typical life that way. And so we did that, and we hadn't been there but a few months when um, Ben's agent called from New York and said, do you want to... um, go on a national tour of a show called State Fair, which uh, he ended up playing the Pat Boone role in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, "He said, well, I'm interested, but I'm not leaving my wife again after having spent the first year and a half of our marriage apart from each other so much. So I ended up auditioning for the show, and we I got in the show, and we ended up traveling the country doing that. And the show actually ended up going to Broadway, and I had my little taste of Broadway, and... Um, 
kind of checked that box and said, okay, let's start a family. So <laughs> after that, we ended up back in North Carolina again and um, started raising a family. So, and when we ended up back in North Carolina at that point, we settled in Wilmington. So we've been here in Wilmington, North Carolina, just over 20 years and um, started our family here and, and um, have four beautiful children, um, two teenage daughters, one that's going off to college this fall. Uh, the second one is going to be a senior in high school. And and then uh, Bo was born, he'll be 13 in July, so um, he came along and, and then uh, five years later, his little sister, Jane, which we ended up calling Biddy because she's so itty-bitty. Um, so our kids range in age from 7 to 18, um, and I can, you know, share more about them, but I, I, feel, I don't want to ramble too much. Let me know. <laughs> feel no, free no, to tell, <laughs> tell, us, uh, you tell us a little bit about about the, the four of them, what they're interested yeah. in. Yeah, they're the joys yeah. of your life, and I think it's people who love yeah. life and love kids like you do that also love these special needs kids. So talk yeah. about those kids of yours. Yeah. So my kids are amazing. Um, b- before Bo was born, uh, Ben and I had had very little exposure to people with disabilities. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I, the kids who attended the public high school that I attended that had special needs were really um, kind of tucked away. And so you know, I look back on those years and I really feel like I missed out on forming some meaningful relationships with people who I would have been great friends with, but just had never been exposed to. And um, so when Bo came along and he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, Ben and I were paralyzed for a while because we hadn't really never known anybody with Down syndrome and were scared of what we didn't know. And spent, you know, a while educating ourselves about the diagnosis. And, you know, looking back on that, um, it was a very scary and um, (sighs) embarrassing time. You know, when I look back and I think about how we reacted at first because of what we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, the the interesting blessing um, that followed was that Biddy was born with Down syndrome too. And so um, by the time we had Biddy's diagnosis, you know, we were so excited because we knew what Down syndrome was and we knew what a blessing bow was in our lives. And we were ready and and just so excited that Biddy was joining our family too and that she also had Down syndrome. Well, when um, we come back, you hold that thought right there. When yeah. we come back, more with Amy Wright. And that's the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And already, folks, you're getting a a taste for the heart and the soul of this lady. And know that in this country, uh, the chances of a a young person uh, and a baby being diagnosed with Down syndrome and coming to live is very low. Uh, Upwards of 70% of kids are terminated before they're born. And we like to talk about that here on the show and educate people about the, the joys and beauty uh, that, that uh, kids who are born with disabilities uh, can bring to a family and to a community. This is Our American Stories. More with Amy Wright and her wonderful story after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Amy Wright. And we were talking with Amy about the birth of Bo and Biddy, both diagnosed with Down syndrome. She had two older children, Lily and Emma Grace. And so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the coffee shop, Amy, is the in-between part. You, you find out these, the, these, these two children have Down syndrome. You learn from the first. The, the second's easier. How did your kids deal with this at first? And also your family and friends. Talk about the, the folks around your family and the reaction to these new children and the new challenges that they were bringing to the family and also the opportunities and blessings. Right. Well, interestingly, you know, Lily and Emma Grace were still quite young when Bo was born, and we made the decision that we weren't going to address the fact that Bo had Down syndrome with them out of the gate, because knowing that they didn't know anything about Down syndrome just as we didn't, we just wanted them to love him and and not be scared of what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so they spent the first, gosh, I mean, over a year we didn't talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome. Now, I will say, looking back on that, I kind of regret that because I think that it's really important to to talk about that and to, you know, to reframe how people feel about Down syndrome and other disabilities. But again, Ben and I were kind of still in that learning curve phase and weren't sure how our girls would deal with it. What we found was, you know, they loved Bo just, just because they, he was their brother, and it didn't it didn't matter, you know, when we did finally talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome, it didn't change anything. Maybe it even deepened their affection for him because they realized all that he had overcome um, because he was born with bilateral cataracts in both eyes and had gone through numerous eye surgeries as an infant. They were worried about things like that. They weren't worried about whether or not he had an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Right. And then, you know, by the time we had the diagnosis with Biddy, they were, you know, overjoyed again, like Ben and I were, because we knew Down syndrome and we knew what we were getting into and we knew what a blessing this was going to be to have a second child with Down syndrome. You know, looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um condolences, which looking back again is kind of is ridiculous, but people around us didn't know Down syndrome either. And I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have as we did for a little while. But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this, this child is just created perfectly and beautifully, and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to 
a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. It almost sounds like a ministry for you. You know, I, I, I meet yeah. people and I tell them all the time they're creating ministries. And it doesn't have to be a church and a steeple. It's just it has to do with love. It has to do with bringing people together and very, very often getting people to see something they might not have seen before through that power of love. And I just, I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm practically in tears because it's, and not sad tears, just tears of, of joy that you yeah. get watching, watching just something beautiful happen. Talk about yeah. that day-to-day coffee shop experience. Talk about what you see each day. By the way, who makes the place run? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And who are the customers? Well, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, you know, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order. Somebody else will make the beverages. Somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table. Um, somebody might be greeting people at the door, but um, they are a well-oiled machine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team. Um, you know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always a thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people, you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like they, <laughs> like heroes. And, yep. uh, you know, they, people recognize them. They come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued. You're no doubt about it. And what a better way to express that through this coffee shop. And you you don't have a a drive-through, and I found that fascinating. And what's the reason for no drive-through? Yeah, well, we just want the the whole motivation behind this is to bring people together and to have that experience of spending time with somebody that's different from you. And so you can't really achieve that as well in a drive through Sure, there's that quick moment, but this is a, the kind of place where you come in and you have a conversation and you see walls start to come down and you see relationships start to form. And so it's very intentional. We don't have a drive through um, Of course, that would boost our business if we did, but we we just do things differently here. And, um, you know, people will line up, people will line up out the door on the weekend just to come in here and experience this. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me, uh, if, you, if you can, a favorite story uh, that our audience would love to hear uh, from sure. that coffee shop. Well, I mean, one of my favorites is that there um, was a young couple that came in uh, months ago and were sitting at our counter and she was pregnant and um, one of our employees, Elizabeth, who has Down syndrome, was behind the bar, and she's just so loving. Anyway, she was hugging the mom and, you know, just being real sweet with them. And um, as the as the mom left, the pregnant young woman left, she said, um, 
you know, this baby we're expecting has Down syndrome too. And, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to talk about because I think that's just such a wonderful experience for her to have had, to have spent that time with Elizabeth and have her fears maybe dissolved, you know, to see. I mean, I remember when Bo was born wondering, would Bo ever walk? Would he talk? You know, what would he achieve? Things that you you start worrying about as a parent. And for, for that young mother to sit there and see Elizabeth not only walking and talking, but holding a job and earning a paycheck and being trusted with responsibility, I mean, that had to have been life-changing for that mother. Yep, no doubt. And and with a minute or two left that we have, talk to anybody out there who is in that position right now. They're, they're pregnant. They've found out that their child's going to have a severe learning disability. Talk to that mom directly if you can. I just would say that, you know, we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that things can happen to us and and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually, and it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against, but the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations, but, you know, the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is, he doesn't make mistakes, and and the way that Bo and Biddy were created was quite intentional, and, um, you know, we just have to learn to embrace differences. I think as a nation, we need to do that more, you know, it's just, we, we need to recognize that each of us was created perfectly and beautifully in our own way and um, and just love one another. And I think that's the greatest lesson I've learned through raising Biddy and Bo. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to see and hear more of what we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, thank you, Amy Wright. And what a message of love. What a story. And it doesn't get better than that, folks. This is Our American Stories, and we talk a lot on this show about history. And as always, our This Day in History segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And we've talked on this show before about the American Constitution and what problem the Constitution was trying to solve. And on this day in history, we look at the life of the man who orchestrated our Constitution. James Madison, one of our founding fathers and our fourth president, died on this day in history. He helped shape America when his masterpiece, the Constitution, was finally signed. Madison did not have a commanding presence. He stood at only five foot four, but that did not keep him from putting his mark on this country. We talked 
to Professor of History and Dean of Social Studies at Hillsdale College, Dr. Paul Marino, about this man who had small stature but a large influence. Well, Madison was, he was very self-effacing. You know, he was, he was very short. Uh, you know, he dressed very modestly. He wasn't, you know, sort of the life of the party. Uh, he was kind of a, a, a withdrawn, you know, sort of academic type. So he, he doesn't have sort of the colorful personality that, you know, Hamilton has. No one's going to make a musical on Broadway about uh, James Madison. His, sort of, his life sort of lacks some of that uh, uh, sort of historical interest as a, as a personality. But the thing about him is he lived the longest. He was one of the youngest of the founders at the Constitutional Convention. And he really was the last of the founders. When he died uh, in 1836, he outlived uh, all of them. And John Marshall came pretty close. He died about a year before uh, Madison. But yeah, he was really able to, uh, uh, to see it all. In fact, Alexis de Tocqueville uh, was supposed to meet Madison in his you know, trip to the, uh, to the United States, but uh, wasn't able to do it. Uh, that would have been a nice touch to ma- uh, finish to Madison's life and would have been a, uh, an interesting addition to uh, democracy in America. James Madison did not win battles on the field like George Washington. Madison won different battles, the battles of wit. Well, I think of, of all of them, he was the most, uh, the most intellectual. You know, he was the deepest, I think, political theorist of, of all of them. Uh, and at the same time, he was also you know, able to serve... Uh, in office, you know, as Secretary of State and President. So he probably had the widest range of both theoretical and practical uh, background of any of the founders. You know, someone like Washington, you know, he was sort of a very little academic uh, background. He's a man of action. Uh, but Madison was the whole, you know, a really unusual combination of, of theory and, and practice. You know, people uh, recognize that this guy knew what he was talking about, that he was, you know, deeply versed in the classics and in history. You know, he really crammed uh, for the Constitutional Convention. You know, he studied uh, the history of republics, and he was, you know, the, the guy did his homework. You know, he really was, you know, uh, really prepared for, uh, for the convention. And the, that was true of the Virginia delegation in general. And the fact that he had a long-standing relationship with, with Washington, that Washington recognized uh, Madison's intellectual abilities uh, that gave Madison some of the you know some of the stature that he lacked personally uh, through his association with uh, Washington. When Washington became president, uh, Madison was pretty much his his ghostwriter in his messages to Congress, for example. And then Madison would write the response of the House of Representatives to presidential messages. So he was sort of carrying on both sides of the uh, uh, executive legislative correspondence. Madison has been referred to as the father of the Constitution. Some have also called him the father of the Bill of Rights. Dr. Moreno addresses whether those names suit Madison. It's true that there are others who you know, put their stamp on the Constitution almost as much as Madison. You know, people like uh, uh, Governor Morris, uh, head of the Committee on Style. But Madison certainly took the initiative, and you know, also because he was the one who kept the record of the convention. Uh, he probably is more responsible for it than anybody else. The Bill of Rights uh, lasts out because Madison was opposed to a Bill of Rights you know, during the ratification debate, and he came around to sponsor it for you know, reasons of political uh, compromise. He wanted to assuage some of the opponents of the Constitution and had promised them a Bill of Rights. And even for you know, Madison's, in his view, the Bill of Rights really didn't change anything. Uh, it was just underlining... Uh, or making explicit things that were already implicit in the structure of the Constitution, limits on the power of the national government. Even though Madison had great success dealing with the Constitution, 
When he was elected president in 1809, Madison found the duties of being in the Oval Office more difficult. Well, as I think, um, uh, as with Jefferson, uh, Madison's reputation uh, you know, gains more from his uh, you know, background, again, his, his philosophical contributions to the Constitution, uh, than as a president. Because by the time Madison became president, the office was you know, very seriously weakened, uh, mostly because of uh, Jefferson, his predecessor. Uh, so that Madison was to some degree the, you know, the, the dependent on his party in Congress. You know, they were the ones who pretty much chose him as Jefferson's successor. Um, and so he's, uh, his, his presidency wasn't, you know, altogether, uh, you know, something that he would have put at the top of the list of his, his achievements. Sort of the fortuitous outcome of the War of 1812. You know, you could, you could you know, level some real criticism about um, Jefferson and Madison's uh, diplomacy uh, and the fact that you know, we're, we're lucky to get out of that war on terms that were as generous as the, the British gave us. But when, after the War of 1812, uh, Madison became convinced that a bank was necessary and also that it was, that it was constitutional. Uh, he said that other, you know, the other branches of the government and the American people, you know, by their decisions and elections, had come to accept the Bank of the United States. And so when he signed uh, the bill that created the second Bank of the United States, he said, well, you know, I was, basically he said I was wrong. Uh, when the father, father of the Constitution pretty much says that his interpretation of the Constitution was, was wrong. Now, that's a pretty big thing to say. And uh, it shows you the way in which uh, the meaning of the Constitution is open to you know, you know, he wasn't relying on the Supreme Court for this. Uh, this is before uh, Marshall said that it was constitutional. Uh, Madison was part of a sort of a community of constitutional interpretation. And I think his, his willingness to see that, uh, he wasn't dogmatic about his own uh, views of the Constitution. Dr. Marino describes what he wishes his students to take away from the life of James Madison. This is one moment in human history where... Uh, Hamilton says at the beginning of the Federalist, we get to decide what kind of government we're going to have by deliberation and choice, not by accident and force. Madison supplied the material for that deliberation. You know, he said that there was you know, a political theory here, there's history here. Uh, he was able to, you know, there's this unique moment where, you know, 55 really smart people are actually thinking about exactly the kinds of things that Hillsdale thinks a liberal arts education is supposed to enable you to think about. Indeed, and thank you for that, as always, and the Hillsdale interns doing a great job for us here. And Hillsdale College does something very unique. I mean, they really defend, explain, and and teach about the Constitution. You can take this remarkable course called Constitution 101 at hillsdale.edu. And it's just terrific. Gather the family around it. We have the oldest Constitution the oldest constitution in the land. We've got this Bill of Rights that secures all of our liberties against the government, against the majority. No amount of people can take away our free speech. No amount of people can take our property rights. The people can't take away our right to a trial. But we also have separation of powers, Article 1, Article 2, and Article 3, creating divided powers between three branches of government. It's a miracle, our constitution. It's provided all the liberties, all the wealth, all the privilege, and my goodness, all the spirit of the American experiment. Without the Constitution, we're another country, folks. And so when you get a chance, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu to study the Constitution. They have a free online course 
called Constitution, the Constitution 101. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of James Madison on our This Day in History segment, as always, sponsored by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And to hear all of our This Day in Histories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We've got a couple of hundred hours of them now, folks, from sports to movies to history to military history. You name it, it's there. Again, ouramericannetwork.org. Our American Stories, and today we're celebrating famed advocate and philanthropist Helen Keller. We sent our Hillsdale intern Shadrach to her birthplace to learn more about this woman. On June 27, 1880, in Tuscumbia, Alabama, Helen Keller was born. She was a healthy baby, born to a former Confederate captain and his wife on their homestead of Ivy Green. She lived a normal life for her first 19 months, but then disease struck. Doctors will often argue if it was either meningitis or scarlet fever. Whatever the answer, she would never see or hear again. Helen Keller began communicating using rudimentary sign language to talk with the daughter of the house cook. By age seven, she could communicate with her family using 60 special family signs. Even at this age, she began surmounting obstacles, learning how to guess someone's age and sex based solely on the vibrations that their feet made on the floor. I made a visit to Ivy Green and met Sue Pilkelton, the executive director of the Helen Keller Museum that's housed there. Under her leadership, tens of thousands of people a year visit the sleepy town of Tuscumbia, Alabama, to see the Keller homestead. Tuscumbia is not on an interstate, so you've got to know you're coming here to get here. We're very proud that we have between 35 and 40,000 visitors a year that come from all over the United States and the world. I always say we're not a state museum or a national, we are an international museum. Ivy Green's museum encompasses Helen Keller's childhood home, preserving it for people of all ages to enjoy. As Helen Keller got older, her parents began seeking someone to teach her. Through the recommendation of famed inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, they found the Perkins Institute for the Blind. The school assigned Ann Sullivan, a former student who was visually impaired, to be Keller's instructor. Ann Sullivan was to teach Keller before she attended school in earnest, which was a long and arduous process. Sue described the beginning of this journey. When Ann Sullivan arrived here in Tuscumbia, she realized that Helen Keller was very spoiled. But of course, Captain and Mrs. Keller did not know how to deal with a child that had become deaf and blind. So basically, they just let her do whatever she wanted to do. And when Ann Sullivan came, she decided real quick, I've got to get her away from the family and get control of her. So they put her in the carriage, which was 640 acres. 
and they drove her all around. And she thought she was going far away, but she just actually came next door to the main house. Sullivan signed words into Keller's hands, attempting to communicate basic concepts like doll or mug. Helen often became frustrated and lashed out, leading to physical altercations between the two. But Sullivan persisted and eventually reached a breakthrough. Anne took her out to the water pump and she began to pump water and spelling it in Helen's hands. And at first she didn't understand it. And then all of a sudden it was like the key just opened her brain and her mind and she learned water. That was her first word. So she spelled that into Annie's hand. And that day she learned 30 words. So the pump, that's where the breakthrough came. People often associate Helen Keller with that moment at the water pump. The moment where the world opened up before her. Sue told me about her experience with the people that come to visit that water pump. Helen Keller toured the world during her lifetime and left an impression on people from every major nation. But that impact was especially felt in Japan of all places. Yesterday we had 25 visitors from Japan that could not speak any English whatsoever. But when they got outside and saw the water pump, they began to speak and take pictures. And I often say that little black pump speaks many languages because they definitely know when they get here and they see that pump, what the pump is all about. And that little black pump spoke volumes to the Japanese people. Something easy to notice when you see the sheer amount of Japanese Helen Keller paraphernalia on display in the museum. However, to Sue, the most important guests are those who share Helen Keller's struggles. You know, we want everyone that comes to the birthplace of Helen Keller to leave here with a great positive uh, experience. But when we have someone that comes here, like Helen, we take up a lot of time. And we want them to know that it's very important that they get the full experience of touring the home and grounds. And it's very important. That is our mission. We want everyone to be excited and have a wonderful experience. But most of all, someone with a disability. Perhaps the most famous rendition of Helen Keller's story is the play and later film The Miracle Worker. Every year, Ivy Green sponsors performances of the play, making sure to accommodate those with disabilities. Last Thursday night, we gave a special performance of The Miracle Worker for a group of deaf or deafblind people uh, throughout the state. They had a convention at Joe Wheeler State Park, and they came, and it was amazing to watch their facial reactions as they were experiencing the pump and and the play itself they really understood and you know as a sighted person many times we take things for granted but it was amazing by the end of it how emotional this group of people who were deaf or deaf blind or just blind really reacted to experiencing the miracle worker after her encounter with the water pump helen began school in earnest all the while dreaming of attending college. Sue described the journey that was Helen's education. Helen Keller was the first deafblind to ever go to college. She went to Radcliffe College. Through the years, Helen had a lot of obstacles, and they didn't want her because of her disability. And she said, no, I want to go. So they put her in the room and uh, made her take all kind of tests without Ann Sullivan being by her side. 
and she scored so extremely high they had to allow her to attend Radcliffe College. When Keller graduated, she began working as an advocate for the blind. She traveled the world, raising money and spurring people into action, all with Ann Sullivan at her side. And despite her success as an advocate, she always resented her inability to speak normally. Here is Helen Keller herself, speaking with the assistance of Ann Sullivan. It is not blindness or deafness that burns me in my dark hours. It is not blindness or deafness that bring me my darkest hours. It is the attitude that I put men in not being able to speak normally. It is the acute disappointment in not being able to speak normally. But rather than this sorrow from experience, I understand more fully. But out of this sorrowful experience, I understand more fully all human strivings thwarted ambitions thwarted ambitions and the infinite capacity of hope and the infinite capacity of hope. The infinite capacity of hope. Despite these challenges, Helen continued. And even though she was unable to speak normally, she stirred something in the hearts of the crowds that she addressed. The inspiration of one woman's fight set in motion a new worldwide appreciation for the struggles of the deaf and the blind. Ivy Green hosts a yearly camp for children that inspires them to persist despite their disabilities, much in the same way that Miss Keller did. We have started a new camp here at the birthplace in the fall, and it's called Camp Courage, a Helen Keller experience. Uh, we invite children that's grades four through six that are deaf or blind or both or even just have uh, sight or hearing disability. But they come and they eat around the dining room table and they do candle making and they use the scents of ivy green which Helen Keller often talked about the magnolia and the roses because blind people see through smell. And then we have team building and that's very important to these children because so many of them are so withdrawn they don't deal with other kids very well but when they get here and they realize that the other children have the same disability they really bond with each other this is all made possible through the charitable donations of private donors funny enough a japanese american doctor initially financed the camp it was her strength that inspired so many people and helen keller's legacy is far more than a story her tenacity and willingness to strive has persisted long after her death, which would not have been possible without the adversity that she faced. I truly believe if Helen Keller had not been deaf and blind, the work that is being done today would have never been done because that she dedicated her life to let people know you may be blind, you may be deaf, you may be deaf-blind, but if you set your mind to it, you can do all things. You may have a disability, but you can do anything if you set your mind to it. But that was Helen Keller's mission. You know, don't look at me as a deaf person or a blind person. Look at me as a person. I can do all things because I've set my mind to it. I went to school. I work every day. I don't want pity. I don't want pity. Helen Keller's story itself holds the power to inspire 
and continues to inspire countless people, despite her death in 1968. Thanks to Ivy Green and Lions International, that little black water pump will continue its mission for generations. And great work to our Hillsdale intern, Shadrach, and that's Hillsdale College. And this is the story of Helen Keller, and it comes from Tuscumbia, Alabama, the home of the Helen Keller Museum. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we love to tell stories about sports and so let's get right into it because you're about to hear a speech you should have heard but didn't maybe a clip or two we're going to give you the whole thing it's one of the best speeches I've heard in a long time and it was given by Brett Favre as he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton Ohio and Favre for any of you who haven't lived under a rock spent 20 years in the NFL as a record-breaking gunslinger with a childlike passion for the game There's never been anyone quite like him on a sideline. His career, which included 11 Pro Bowls, three All-Pro teams, three MVP awards, and NFL records for completions, 6,300, starts 298, the Iron Man of the NFL, as well as interceptions, my goodness, he had plenty of them, 336, and fumbles, 166, and sacks, 525. He had records for everything, the good and the bad. And that's the thing about Brett Favre. He'd tell you every time, if you ain't throwing interceptions, you ain't throwing. And you got to take risks and you got to take the consequences with it and go back in there and lead the guys again. And it all culminated again this entire career with a speech. But by the way, you're limited to only 12 minutes. But he broke this record too, 36 minutes. The longest speech ever at Canton. And as only Favre could do, no one wanted to pull the mic from him. Let's take a listen to it. By the way, the first thing you got to start out with is those crazy Packer fans because they came in droves. Take a listen to them because they wouldn't let Brett Favre start. (laughs) And I've watched a lot of these. I've never seen it happen that long. It was like a minute and a half, and they wouldn't let him start, and everybody's practically crying on the stage. Because the affection this guy and the bond this guy created with his fans was unlike anything I've ever seen. But why? Thank you, Canton. Thank you, Hall of Fame. Thank you, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Believe me, I'm blessed. I, I'm an extremely blessed man. I look at my family. Um, what a lucky man. To play a game that I love so much for 20 years, to have all the wonderful things happen, what a blessing. To share in that, in that joy with you guys here tonight, uh, what an incredible night, what an incredible week. And having my wife introduce me was 
an easy choice, considering she was there long before my first touchdown pass, long after the last. And then he went on to talk about the first big day in his life that changed his life, his first NFL game, the first one he ever saw, and also quickly thereafter, the second biggest day of his life, which happened at the hinge and heel of that first day. December 18th, 1983. I was 14 years old. My dad took my older brother Scott and I to, to see the last regular season game the Saints would play that year as they were playing the Rams. Now, I was pretty certain at 14 years old of what I was going to do in my future, and that was I was going to be the next Roger Stallback or Archie Manning or Joe Montana. Um, but this was the first and only game that I would ever see in person. And if the Saints won this game, they would have made the playoffs for the first time in franchise history. So it was a pretty electric crowd. And as we sat in our seats prior to kickoff, the crowd stood and they pointed in the direction of the Saints tunnel. And as I stood, I saw this long, gray-haired, scruffy-beard player emerging from the tunnel. And I knew then and there, as goosebumps ran up my arm and the hair on the back of my neck stood up, that that was what I was destined to do and be. I wanted to be that player. Well, that player happened to be none other than Kenny Stabler. I, I knew that, of course, I didn't have many choices. It was football, baseball, or bust for me. I didn't have many choices. But I knew then and there that I wanted to be and feel what Kenny Stabler was feeling. What an exciting moment for me. The other part about this story that's important is when we returned home that night, what we didn't know is our mother had set up a surprise birthday party for my older brother, Scott, who was turning 17. Well, I unknowingly entered the house first to a large eruption of surprise, and of course it was not my birthday. And as you can imagine, a 14-year-old boy uh, in that situation with all his classmates there was red-faced and embarrassed, and I was looking for the quickest way to get to my bedroom. So as I bolted and ducked my head and made my way through all of our classmates, there was one person that caught my eye and one person only. Well, it didn't matter. I went and hid my room, and as I got up the nerve to come out later, that person and I, we played basketball, we, we talked. We played basketball, we talked. And several days later, as we used to say back in the day, we started going together. Well, that person happened to be my future wife, Deanna. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this speech about his wife, about his kids, but particularly about his dad, because he spent almost 12 minutes on it. He couldn't get through it. He had to stop a bunch of times. You could tell as the camera kept coming on his family, they were laughing the whole time because he was telling stuff about his dad that most of us today would be appalled at because his dad believed in a sort of old style, tough love. But my goodness, you know one thing, this family believed in it. We might not believe in it now, but boy, the camera didn't lie. Brett Favre's voice didn't lie, and you're going to hear a guy tell a story about his dad and how he couldn't have been anything without him. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Brett Favre, and if, you, if you're if you a crying type, uh, get a tissue, because uh, he made the whole place cry. Again, Lee Habib, 
This is Our American Stories. Brett Favre, his Hall of Fame induction speech. It doesn't get better than this, folks. A little boy from Kiln, Mississippi, a place in the middle of nowhere, becomes world famous. And again, without his dad, it couldn't have happened. Habib and this is our American stories and we're celebrating Brett Favre's life basically the only way you can by listening to him say thanks to all the people who'd gotten him where he got and as you'll learn in this speech he had a lot to be thankful for there were a bunch of people along his life without whom he could not have made it and again and again he will let all of us and remind all of us that how we treat other people along their path can make the difference, particularly when we show a belief in another person. Because Brett will tell you, he didn't have much belief in himself. Where he was from, his size, he does not exactly look like an NFL quarterback. He doesn't have that 6'5 Peyton Manning frame. No, sir. But somehow, he had something inside him that people spotted, nurtured, and developed. And that first person who he just mentioned, the aforementioned woman that he met, and played basketball with way into the night, into the next day, and herself, practically a world-class athlete, having survived cancer. Well, you're going to hear the story. His wife survived cancer, and she's now running, she's now doing Ironman competitions. Pretty tough. And toughness runs in this family. So here's Brett Favre on his wife, Deanna. By far the strongest and most courageous person I know. She's a wonderful mother of two daughters. An exceptional athlete, not only then, but now as she most recently is competing in an Ironman in the next two months, which is incredible. Definitely a strong woman of faith. She fought cancer in the public eye. And not only won, but she managed, managed to inspire so many, including myself, along the way. She, in the process, she formed her own foundation that has helped countless women in their fight with breast cancer as well. And I'll say this, she's definitely the best-looking grandmother I have ever seen. As our two grandsons are here, Parker and AJ, and I know they're ready to go to bed and they want Papa to stop talking right now. But I, one more thing about my wife, she's as beautiful today, and I'm not going to say her age because I got in trouble last year in Green Bay for saying that, but she's as beautiful today as she was 
December 18, 1983, in my living room. Uh, Paul Paul kept on talking, all right. And after talking about his daughters, he did a shout-out to his mother-in-law. And by the way, how often does that happen, a guy doing a shout-out to his mother-in-law? And listen to Favre choke up talking about this lady. My mother-in-law, who for 33, 34 years has been by far my biggest fan, I have never thrown an interception that has been my fault, according to, <laughs> according to my mother-in-law, Ann. We all know her as Momo. She's helped raise our kids. She's lived with us in New York and Minnesota and Green Bay. And she's helped raise grandkids, other people's kids, you name it. She's one of the most patient and loving women you'll ever, you'll ever. He's choking up here. Not even halfway through. Uh, help me out here. And then it was on to his mother, Bonita, and what she taught him about life and about everything else. My mother, who just recently had her hip replaced, and by no means was she going to be put on waivers for this. She was going to be here. She is here. My mother taught me that being there for your children... My mother taught me that being there for your children is absolutely important. I never, not one time, remember my parents ever not being there at a sporting event, any school function, you name it. They were always there. We ate dinner together. We ate breakfast together. We rode to school together. We did everything together. And that's something that has been lost in this generation. I watched my mother teach special education at Hancock North Central High School for many, many years. And at that time, I didn't appreciate the patience and the type of person that it takes to, to do that type of job. But, but I learned by watching her and being around her students that treating everyone as an equal and with respect is not only important but essential. So, Mom, I say thank you. I love you. Mom was the one who always told us she loved us and was a caregiver. And you had to know my father. He was the heavy-handed one. Um, so it was a good blend, one-two punch. But, Mom, I love you, and thank you so much. And, again, far of time and again stumbled here. We sort of cut out uh, much of that. Uh, and one thing that you got to know, he had no script here. Most of these guys come on pretty scripted. Favre just won it like he did when he pulled back in the huddle. I mean, there was a play. But what made Favre great always is what happened when the play broke down. You almost got the sense he wanted it to break down. Because in chaos, this guy was just great. And the defense didn't know what to do because he knew how to extend a play. 
And yeah, there'd be some interceptions, but the thrill of watching him in that chaos is, I think, what Packer fans loved about him. And he didn't just dump the ball away like a lot of quarterbacks would and not take the risk. And that warrior spirit spirit in him is why you keep hearing those fans. And this emotional intimacy that you hear, this sort of raw uh, sort of masculinity that has an emotional side, it's a rare thing that you hear a jock talking like this. And he was always like this. And you'd see him on the sidelines hugging guys and tapping them on the butt and encouraging them and yelling at them and loving on them. And he just, you couldn't get enough of him. And guys loved playing for and with Brett Favre. Here he is on his brother's and his sisters. My two brothers, Scott and Jeff, my sister Brandy, they're sitting here in the front row. I think they all would agree. I love them so much. It was, it was definitely a fun childhood. We competed. We fought. We ate. We competed. We fought. We ate. We loved each other at the end of the day. And we got up the next morning and we started it all over again. But it was wonderful, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I love you guys so much. Thank you. We competed, we fought, we ate. We competed, we fought, we ate. We loved one another. And then we got up all <laughs> in the morning and did it all over again. My goodness, what a great childhood. What a lucky guy. And what a lucky guy to grow up where he grew up, with the family he grew up at the time he grew up. This is Lee Habib. This is Brett Favre in his own voice talking about his life, giving thanks. And by the way, we like to share those kind of stories with you because you don't hear them anywhere. This is a clip and then you go to the murder and the mayhem. But this is real life. This is how we all try and live our lives. lives. And Brett Favre did his best to lead with joy, with passion. And again, it's why all those Packer fans trekked to Canton, Ohio. And I mean, they filled the stadium with them. They had to do it in an outdoor stadium. I never saw anything like it. And Brett, well, he knows Packer fans, so he wasn't surprised. When we come back, we told you he was going to tell us about his dad. He did. You're going to hear it. And much more. You're going to hear about his coaches, too. All of them, because he names all of them. And then the players, because he calls them all up, and he calls them out by name. And they're all smiling. Every single one of them made it. All of them made it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Brett Favre's story, in his own words, after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Brett Favre's Hall of Fame speech in Canton, Ohio. We're bringing it all to you. I didn't have the heart to edit any of this out. Who the heck am I to do that? Who the heck is this team to do that? I couldn't stop watching the whole thing. That's why we bring these things to you. Because my goodness, this just pumped me up by the time it was over. I was crying, but a really good cry. And you watch the people walk out like they just left a great concert. You could just watch the audience rushing out and then these fireworks. And you watched all the athletes coming together like you hadn't seen. And Favre's back slapping all of them. And he's just one of those guys. One of those guys. And then it was his dad. And he starts off by telling the story of the day he found out his father died. He had a game in Oakland, and he played that game because he knew his dad would have wanted him to. Don't abandon the team. And sort of a military ethos. And so he honored his father's legacy by playing that game. And it ended up being the greatest performance of his life. And the whole country watched it knowing what had happened. And the Oakland fans, by the way, are not known for being gracious. But the ovation they gave him and the players and the respect they afforded him was really remarkable. You don't see it in sports. You don't equate grace in sports that often. But he won in Oakland and was flying back to Mississippi for the funeral with his bride and with friends. He was given a special escort by the Oakland police. And a special plane was chartered by some friends. And here he is talking about that, that tough flight back home to bury his dad. On our flight back, it was a long flight. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of emotions. As we had just won the game, and, and it was probably the best game that I'd ever played in. But that really didn't matter at that point. And we laughed. We cried. We tried to sleep. We laughed and we cried. And... One time in particular, Deanna says to me, and you'd had to know my father. My father was short on praise and long on tough love. He, if, he, if he was ever to praise me, I was not to hear it. It was always, you can do better. He was always pushing me to be better. That was okay. Never did I hear him say, son, you've arrived. You're the best. That was awesome great game. It was always, yeah, but. So Deanna says to me on the plane, you know, your dad had said to me that he had hoped or could not wait for the day that you were inducted into the Hall of Fame so he could introduce you. And up until that moment, I had never thought about the Hall of Fame. And I mean no disrespect to the Hall of Fame. I say this with the utmost respect for all you guys. I had dreamed of playing the NFL, believe me, way more than I thought about my, my schoolwork. I thought about being Archie Manning, running around throwing underhand passes. I thought about being my childhood favorite, Roger Stallback, throwing it to Preston Pearson or Drew Pearson, handing it off to Tony Dorsett, being Kenny Stabler coming out of the tunnel. I had thought of those things so many times, but I never thought of the Hall of Fame until that moment. And so a new goal had entered my mind then and there. And I said to myself, I will make it to the Hall of Fame. And his father was a coach. And here he is talking about that dimension and that aspect of their relationship. 
He taught me toughness. Boy, did he teach me toughness. Trust me, there was no room for crybabies in our house. He taught me teamwork. And by all means, no player was ever more important than a team. And my father, for those who don't know, chose to run the wishbone, which some of you younger generation people do not even know what that is, but it never entailed throwing. But that was the type of coach he was, and that was the type of dad he was. He would never showcase his son's talents or anyone else's talents for their good rather than the team's good. And so then in there, in that moment on that plane, I was determined for selfish reasons to get to this point, to acknowledge how important he was. I would not be here before you today without my father. There's no doubt whatsoever. And one last story about his dad. And never underestimate the importance of being there for your boy. One more thing about my father, and this is something I've never told anyone, including Deanna. My dad was my high school football coach. He was the head football coach. He coached me and my two brothers. But I, I, didn't, I never had a car growing up. I always rode to and from school with my father in his truck, and so he was always the last to leave the building because he had to turn the lights off, lock up, and then we made our way home. So it was the last high school football game of my high school career. And although I don't remember how I played before, and I don't remember how I played in the last game, what I do remember is sitting outside the coach's office, say on a Wednesday, waiting for my father to come out so we could leave. It was dark. And I overheard my father talking to the three other coaches and heard him And I I assume I didn't play as well the previous week only because of what he said. And he said, I can assure you one thing about my son. He will play better. He will redeem himself. I know my son. He has it in him. And I never let him know that I heard that. I, I never said that to anyone else. But I thought to myself, that's a pretty good compliment, you know. My chest kind of swole up. And I, again, I never told anyone, but I, I never forgot that statement and that comment that he made to those other coaches. And I want you to know, Dad, I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get through it. Uh, but I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself and make him proud. And I hope I succeeded. And then he just had to take a break, as you could tell. And we all did. I got to tell you, the set, when it came back to ESPN, every single guy is crying. Every single guy. Anyway, then he goes on to thank a lot of other people. And you're going to get to this part of the speech. And it's all these strangers, these coaches, who just love on him. But tough love. They wanted to see the best Brett Favre he could be. 
And I think too often we're, look, I love our country, I love our people, and I love our parents, but I think sometimes we go overboard in a few praise of our kids. We're creating entitled children. And maybe his dad went the other extreme and didn't say, I love you enough. But my goodness, listen to that. Listen to it. And listen, you had to see the, the pictures of the family members and the friends and the pride he had in his dad and the pride his dad had in him. And the performance he got out of his son. He got the best out of his son. And in the end, his parents, that's our job. I mean, we got to love our kids. We got to love them enough to sometimes discipline them. And Brett Favre's dad was not afraid to do that. The mom provided the love. The dad provided the discipline. As he put it, it was a great blend. And it worked for him. And when we come back, we're going to hear about those other men in his life. The coaches who believed in him and gave him a shot. And in the end, one man, one businessman who gave him a shot in the NFL. Where no one else thought he should be there. And again, Favre will break down one or two more times here. But it's raw, and it is real. And we all did with him, those of us who watched it. And when we come back, more with Brett Favre. His gratitude, evident. His love, evident. The Canton Hall of Fame speech that we're bringing to you here on Our American Story. Celebrating the career of Brett Favre in Brett Favre's words. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and our final segment and installment of Brett Favre's great speech at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. A 20-year career in the NFL, he smashed every record, the good ones and the bad ones. 11 Pro Bowls, three MVP awards, and in this particular part of the speech, he went on to thank some of his coaches, and one in particular was special. And it was a coach at Southern Miss. He didn't get picked by any of the big programs. He got only one scholarship offer. And it wasn't an SEC school right up the road, right here in Oxford, Mississippi, Ole Miss. No. It was little old Southern Miss in Hattiesburg. There's two coaches in particular that were at Southern Miss at the time that meant more than anyone. Mark McHale was offensive line coach. And Mark was the recruiting recruited the, the area of the Mississippi Gulf Coast in which I played. And he fought tooth and nail to get me a scholarship, and it came down to the last hour. And when I say last hour, I literally mean last hour. And he fought, and he believed in me, and I thank him so much. And he's coaching high school football back in West Virginia, probably watching right now. So, Coach, I thank you so much for believing in me and sticking it out giving me that opportunity. And the second coach is a guy who has since passed away, and his name is Thamus Coleman. And as we called him back then, Famous Thamus, was a great guy. And I found out this story, this was a story that Ron Wolf would later tell me after I started playing in Green Bay. Well, he came down after my senior year to watch film of my senior season. And I believe Ron at the time was with the Jets and was looking for a quarterback. 
And he, after he watched his, his film of my senior year upon leaving the building, famous Coleman said, well, Ron, what did you think? And Ron Wolf said, not that impressed. We said, I'm not sure if you know, Brett had a really bad car wreck right before the start of this season. He lost 34 inches of his, of his intestines. He fractured a vertebrae in his back. Not only is he, was he not supposed to play, we didn't think he would. And he suffered other injuries as well. But he did start four years for us, and I encourage you to go back in and watch the three previous years. Well, Ron Wolf took his advice and went back in and watched the film. And upon leaving, famous Coleman said, well, what did you think? And as I like to say, the rest is history. Without that coach going the extra yard, there goes Brett Favre's NFL career. And then it took one businessman, Ron Wolf. He was the GM of the Packers, the man who turned the Packers around. And one man, one woman can always make a difference, folks. In fact, they almost always do. And when he takes over, he brings in this young guy named Brett Favre. And here is Brett talking about the general manager. And you don't hear athletes talk about GMs like this. Ron Wolf is the single most important person to the Packers' rebirth than any other person out there. Player, coach, GM. It had been almost 25 years since the Packers had had any success when Ron Wolf took over. And since then, we all know what the Packers have done. Without Ron Wolf, Mike Holmgren would not have coached in Green Bay. There would not have been a Brett Favre. There would not have been a Favre to Sharp and Driver and Brooks, Freeman, Chimura, Keith Jackson, Dorsey Levins, Edgar Bennett, Frank Winters, Santana Dotson, Andre Wright. The list goes on and on. The single biggest free agent acquisition in NFL history is Reggie White. And as I like to say, Ron Wolf made it cool to come to Green Bay. So I thank you, Ron, for believing in me, seeing something in me that others didn't see, probably including myself, and sticking your neck out there for one of the riskiest and craziest trades in NFL history. When you decided to trade a first-round pick for me uh, with Atlanta. So I say thank you, Ron. I love you. You mean more to me than anyone. And he said it a few times. These people stuck their neck outs for him, and they believed in him. So anytime you get a chance and you can stick your neck out for someone and then follow that up with some real belief, oh my goodness, you can change a life, folks. Here's Brett Favre on Coach Mike Holmgren. The man he hired, Mike Holmgren, the greatest head coach I've ever played for. I see him sitting with my good friend, Matt Hasselback. We both can attest. He's one of the toughest and most demanding coaches you will ever be around. He's a true perfectionist, and I'm sure Steve and Joe would say the same thing. But he was a very fair guy, and I know that 
because could you imagine being Mike Holmgren and leaving San Francisco? Tremendous success, coaching two of the greatest players of all time, Joe Montana and Steve Young, and getting stuck with Brett Favre. <laughs> now, I thought I was good, but I had no idea what good was. And I am so thankful that Mike chewed my ass but believe enough in me to give me another chance. Because there were many times he could have and should have pulled me. And had he done that, there's probably someone else standing here before you talking. So I'm thankful, Mike, for you and believing in me. I thought I was good, but I had no idea what good was. And look at the gratitude he has for this man, that while he was going through that crucible, he had to be cursing Mike Holmgren every other day. Do you know who I am? I'm Brett Favre. And Holmgren just right back in his grill. Right back in his grill. You can do better. But never taking him off the field. Wow. He then asked the players who he played with to stand up, and they all showed up. It was, well, it was a testimony to Favre's leadership talents. I want... The guys that I play with to stand up. I'd love to call each and every one of you out by name. And this is college too. If there's one, stand up. If there's 100, stand up. I love you guys. I love you. Let me tell you, and this may not be a secret. I love playing with you guys. It was a blast. I love carrying you off on the fireman carry. I love tackling you. I love slapping Marco in the ass. I loved it. I loved it. And he loved it too. And for everyone up here, they would all agree that's what it's all about. Not necessarily slapping them on the ass, but loving your teammates, competing, fighting, scratching. Tough losses, tough wins. Man, that's what it's all about. And in the end, he closed it out by talking about the things he was most proud of. Here's Brett Favre closing out one of the great speeches ever at Canton. What I'm most proud of, what I think about most, has nothing to do with statistics. Although, who would have ever thought that a young man from Kill, Mississippi, whose father ran the wishbone, would hold every passing record in NFL history at one time. Pretty doggone amazing, if you ask me, but, but, what I, but I, that's not what makes me most proud. What makes me most proud is how I played the game and being real, authentic, and spontaneous and loving the game to me is what it was all about. I couldn't believe that they paid us and that I was racking up statistics like I was. I was just having fun. And I'm most proud of that. And so when I look back over my 20 years, I can honestly tell you, I can't tell you a lot, but I can honestly tell you that I hold no regrets. Did, Did we win every game? No. Did I make every throw? No. That I make mistakes more than I care to count. But I can say this, there was never one time 
where I did not give it all I could. You know, and I, I've said this to my daughters, and I, I say it to any young person out there who is playing sports. Don't ever look back and regret not doing your best. Don't ever look back, because there are no second chances. When you're 25 and you wish you would have done something in high school, it's too late. Don't cheat yourself. Don't cheat your teammates. Work as hard as you possibly can. Lay it all on the line, and whatever happens, happens. But you won't look back and regret. I don't regret anything. It's not to say it was perfect. I don't regret anything, and that's what I'm most proud of. And I say thank you again. You know, most people fail out of self-sabotage. They just don't give it their all. Some self-doubt, something, some upbringing, who knows what. And Favre's a lucky man. His dad taught him how to give his all. His mom taught him how to keep that human nature and not let the competitive instinct overwhelm everything. Love and surrender. And he did both so well. And that's what people loved about Brett Favre. He surrendered everything on that field, and yet he did it with love. The best of the masculine and feminine, and whatever either of those things even mean anymore. It was all there. This is Lee Habib. Brett Favre's extraordinary speech, pretty much unedited. For you, this is Our American Stories.